And if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I had Dalton read in our hearing of the Word this morning a parallel passage to this from the letter to the Galatians, because Paul teaches them the same truth that he's teaching the Romans in this particular passage, and the same truth that he wants you and I to understand so clearly. This whole idea of adoption, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have this picture of, of Spencer and Catherine in the process, and right up at the end, we've got other, others that have been adopted in our church family, and we rejoice with them in that also, but the, the idea of, of that, that calling, that idea of that choosing, that idea of, of bringing into a family someone that has no, no right to be there. There is no demand that a person can make. This baby being born in Springfield cannot say to Spencer and Catherine, but I deserve to be in your family. I have a right to be in your family. There's no right there. Uh, It is all by grace. It is all by their willingness to open their hearts and their homes. And, And our adoption of the family of God is exactly that way. We have no right to be a part of the family of God. We have every reason not to be. Because we, we rejected him. Paul said early in the book of Romans that because of the way we live, because of the choices we made, as well as the original sin that dwells in us, that, that we were rebels against God. In fact, we were at enmity with God. We were enemies of his based on the basis of the fall. But God, through his grace, God, through his grace, has opened his heart and said, I will receive you into my family. I will adopt you into my family. And and human adoption is just a beautiful picture of the divine and the spiritual adoption that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul talks about that, he also wants to understand that that adoption ought to be the basis for our assurance, that we ought to have, have our assurance that we are in Christ and that we belong to him based on our adoption as sons and daughters of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, supplied by the Holy Spirit, because of the will of the Father. The whole Trinitarian involvement there that we sang about in that doxology that I almost interrupted earlier. You know, praise to the Father, praise to the Son, praise to the Spirit, ever three in one, ever ever one God, but manifesting Himself as three persons. The Blessed Trinity that the Scripture speaks of so clearly, maybe not by that word, but so clearly in its understanding. But the Apostle Paul, picking up in verse 14 of chapter 8, begins to talk about us as being adopted in the family of God. And this is what he says, reading verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. Intimate phraseology there. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now that verse 17 sort of serves as a transition for the next passage, which is going to talk about suffering and what suffering is and how God works in our, our sufferings 
in this life for his glory and for our good. So we're not going to worry about that part today. We're going to talk about the adoption and the assurance today that comes out of this. But I want you to see something else that's very important. A lot of people pick up on verse 14 and they say, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And they take that in sort of a very subjective manner. If I feel some leadership, if I feel something, then that must be the Spirit of God that's moving me. And the Scripture tells me that if we are led by the Spirit, then we are His children. Because we are His children, we are led by the Spirit. There's sort of that circular reasoning there that goes on. And they say, then, whatever I feel, if I'm a believer, whatever I feel must be right. That's not a whole lot better than just a sanctified attempting to glorify the old phrase, just follow your heart, which is absolutely not good. Not good advice. It was funny, I was watching a little TV this week. I don't get to watch a lot of it, but I was watching some this week. And three different times on three different programs, the phrase was used, well, well, you just have to learn to follow your heart. One of those was on a, quote, Christian television station. You just need to learn to follow your heart. That's not a whole lot different from if it feels good, do it. It's not a whole lot different from just saying, well, what I feel and what I want is is what must be right, and so I will do it. That's very much a man-centered, self-centered, self-glorifying way to look at life. And yet that's what our culture tells us to do. But Paul is saying something much deeper here. When Paul says if we are led by the Spirit, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or daughters. They're children of God. You could read that very clearly. Brothers and sisters in Christ. You've got you to take into account that little word for there that begins that. You've got to realize that Paul is not coming into some new subject matter here. He's continuing on with what he's already been talking about. He said, and we talked about the mortification or putting to death the deeds of the flesh. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the, all who are led by the Spirit to do what? To do whatever they want to do? No. All who are led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what this leadership is. That's where God calls us, leads us, and draws us, and carries us to see that assurance that we are sons and daughters of God. If we are indeed being led by the Spirit, and we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Now, in my prayer this morning, I was, I was very honest. I prayed that in a plural because it was a pastoral prayer for all of us, but I meant it in a very individualized way. I fail miserably at that at, from time to time. I slip up. I fall. I don't always fully fulfill the desire to put to de- death the deeds of the flesh, but the truth of the matter is when I fail is usually when I'm trying to do it in my own strength. And we have to realize that Paul makes very clear that if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, if you are mortifying sin in your life by the Spirit, the Spirit of God is at work in you. He is leading you in this mortification. So don't ever separate in reading chapter 8. Don't ever say, well, Paul must be changing subjects here right in the middle of a paragraph. Of course, There were no paragraphs or sentences or verses or chapters or anything when Paul wrote this. It was one letter, one continuous letter that he wrote to the Roman Christians. And his thought does not change there. There are times when our interpreters in in breaking up chapters and verses, which I'm thankful for, because they help very much in being able to to say, you know, I didn't have to say, okay, go to the 
you got to have the same Bible because you got to go to page 452 in the Bible in order to, to find this text. And now look about halfway down the page and we finally get together. I can say go to Romans 8, 14. And you go immediately there. So I'm thankful for that. But even the passage I had uh, a Dalton read this morning in the hearing of the word in Galatians, the, the thought is broken up between chapters there. He read the last verse of one chapter and the first nine verses of the next chapter because the interpreters broke it up. But it's obviously a continuation of thought there that we are sons of God, we are daughters of God, we are adopted in the family of God, and we are heirs with Jesus Christ for everything that God has and everything that he is. So when we come to think about this, I don't want you to come to think that, that being led by the Spirit of God is just some kind, of a, some kind of a subjective feeling, some kind of an idea that, well, as long as I feel it, that must be the Spirit. I've had many people through my 40 years of pastoring, many, many people come to me and say, well, you know, Bill, I just feel like I need to do this. I feel like this is what God is leading me to do. I feel like this is what the Spirit is, is directing me and guiding me and leading me to do. And, and I've heard that for so many things, I won't even begin to tell you, that are absolutely contrary to the Word of God. I always go back to that couple in college and, and remember that because you would never know them in a million years, so you can't put any names and faces with them. I was teaching a Bible study when I was in college at the Baptist Student Center, and, and, and every Tuesday night we met, we were studying uh, 1 Corinthians, which was an interesting uh, course of study for a group of college students. And I remember after, after the Bible study one night, this young couple came up to me, their boyfriend, girlfriend, and they, they said, would you go get some coffee with us tonight after we get through? We want to ask you a question. And I said, certainly. And we want to ask you to pray for something for us. I said, certainly. So we went and got coffee, and we sat down at the restaurant, and we started drinking coffee. And I said, well, what is this thing you want to ask me about? I said, well, you know, we, we really love each other, and, and we've been together for about three or four years, and, and we're both still in school, and our parents are paying for our college education. If we get married, our parents are not going to you know where this is going. If we get married, our parents are not going to continue to pay for it, to pay for it ourselves. And so what, what we would like to ask you to pray about, we're just really feeling led by the Spirit to, be, to just kind of move in together and live together until we can get out of college, and then we'll get married and everything will be great. And we'd like for you to pray for us that we would have wisdom on how to do that. And they said, will you pray for us? And I said, no. I, I won't pray for you about that. And they looked offended. They looked taken aback. They said, what do you mean? You're our Bible study leader. You, you won't pray for us. I said, no, I will pray for you that you will get in the Word and understand that what you're asking God to ordain, what you're asking God to agree to, what you're asking God and you're saying the Spirit is leading you to do is totally contrary to God's revealed perfect Word. So no, I won't ask God to give you freedom to do something that God has said is an absolutely out-of-the-question situation for believers. Ought to be for unbelievers too, but that's a whole other story. And they were totally dismayed. And through the years, I've had just as many weird situations where people say, I really believe the Spirit's leading me to do this. And it might be unethical, it might be, in some cases, borderline criminal. And I said, no, you, you, you don't understand. There may be a Spirit leading you to do that, but it's not the Holy Spirit. 
It's not the Spirit of the living God. It's not God at work in your life to lead you to do something that God has so clearly and, and, and vividly said is a total violation of His will and His purpose and His goal for your life. The couple never came back to Bible study again. I'm sure they found another one somewhere else that maybe would have gone along. But, but that's what I, I want you to understand. The, Paul is saying that mortifying the deeds of the flesh, the Spirit doing that in your life, is evident that the Spirit is leading you. He's leading you into sanctification. He's leading you into spiritual growth. And by leading you into spiritual growth, then you will have the assurance that you belong to Him, that you are the sons and the daughters and the children of God because He has adopted you into His family and He is at work shaping you. There'll be struggles. There'll be failures. There'll be times when you want to just give up. But God is shaping you and working in you gloriously. As I was preparing this sermon this week and thinking about it, I thought, it's a sinful thought, I'm sure, but I thought it anyway. Why do I do this? Ever, pastor, ever had a pastor tell you, he asked himself the question, why do I do this? I mean, every week, with the exception of a few vacation Sundays, 52 weeks out of the year, special events, special times, proclaiming the word, preaching the word, teaching the word, realizing that a lot of times it's, it's just kind of going to deaf ears. That many times there are people who are saying, but, I, I, that, but what God's Word says I want to do, I ought to do is not what I want to do. And I want to have a feeling I'm led by the Spirit and following my heart and doing all these things. I just want to do what I want to do. I want to be very man-centered. And I ask, why do I do this? I mean, partially I do it to preach to myself. I know that I'll hear what God is saying if I'm proclaiming what God is saying with clarity. And there's a lot in the script, there's a lot in Romans that you're going to say, well, I don't know if I like that or not. Well, too bad. It's not Paul writing, it's not Bill Haynes saying it, it's, it's the Spirit of God inspiring writing and writing and bringing that about for our understanding, our edification, our growth, our sanctification, our, our being made more like Christ every single day. That's the purpose. So why do I do this? I do this because I think this is important. I do this even though at times it's discouraging. I do this even though at times I, I feel like, oh yeah, I've poured my heart out. I've poured everything I know about a text out. And, and I, I've seen so clearly what God is wanting to do. And I see in people's lives them going totally the opposite direction. But it even hurts even more when I see in my own life that I don't follow it so clearly. but I know I'm His because He gives me the desire for this Word and He gives me the desire for His presence and He gives me the desire to flee to Him. I know that I belong to Him. And so it's out of sanctification, out of mortification that comes being led by the Spirit in that mortification, seeing sins, even though not all of them, but seeing sins dealt with in my life and in your life, that we come to the assurance that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are heirs with Christ, that we are children, adopted children into the family of God. 
what Paul is wanting us to see as clearly as we can possibly see it here. I think back to one of the old Christian documents, a Heidelberg Catechism written in the 1500s by Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olivetinus. Why couldn't they have had Smith and Jones back then in Germany? I don't know. But Ursinus once said, after writing the Heidelberg Catechism, he said, I would not take a thousand worlds, worlds, universes, for the blessed assurance of being owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. wouldn't trade anything that this world or any other world has to offer for the blessed assurance of knowing that I am owned, bought, paid for, possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is dwelling in me and I am in Him. That's what Paul's been talking about in Romans 7 and 8. I am in Him to the glory of God. His co-writer, Oevelanus, lay dying on his bed in... 18, excuse me, 1587. And a friend asked him if he was certain of his salvation. And he responded with his last dying word. Certissimus. Most certain. And he died. That flowed out of that first question that those two wrote in the Heidelberg Catechism. I use it a lot of times in funerals. But it really is good for us to think about and meditate on and rejoice in right now, before death. The question is quite simple. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Is your only comfort what I have done or what I am doing or what I think I can do for the kingdom of God? Is your only comfort that I have joined a church and been baptized and prayed a prayer? And, and Is that your only comfort? Then the writer of the Heidelberg Catechism would say, you have, you have a very weak source of comfort. This is how they answered that. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's my only comfort, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But they go on. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from the power of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that, I, that, that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him by His Holy Spirit. He assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. End quote. That, that one verse, that one question, that 
first question at catechism is worth the whole catechism. Now, it gets into all the theology and all the doctrine and all the truths of the Christian faith, and that's all excellent and well done. But to get the thought going, to get our thought going, to think about what are you hoping for? What are you finding comfort in, in this life and in the life to come? And if you're trusting your own ability, it's a very man-centered faith, it's a very man-centered religion, and it's nothing more than religion. Your trust must be that I am not my own. I cannot do it myself. I belong to Christ, body and soul, to my faithful Savior. Jesus Christ. In this whole chapter of Romans 8, and we'll see a lot more about this as we move through this very carefully and very cautiously, but we'll see in this whole chapter of Romans 8 that Paul directs our faith from a dim twilight, if you will, of man-centered uncertainty to the brilliant, gloriful, glorious truth of God-centered assurance. You see, if If our hope is in us, if our trust is in what I do, when I slip, when I fall, when I struggle, when I have uncertainty, I will have uncertainty of who I am in Christ or if I'm even in Christ. But if I recognize the fact that I belong to Him, I've been purchased by Him, and and because I know that I'm His, Because He is moving in my life, leading me in this mortification, this killing of sin every single day. He's showing me things that need to be dealt with. You know, one writer said that confident Christians in this truth are like battleships surging through the waves, but timid and uncertain Indeed, man-centered people who profess to be Christians are little corks bobbling up and down, tossed around by every tide and wave. But confident believers, sure of their salvation, sure of their faith in Christ, are moving like battleships through the waters, through the oceans, through the storms. So, in Romans 8, Paul gives us reasons with an aim in view of keeping us confident in our faith, even when we struggle somewhat. Arguing that God loves us with, a, with an invincible love. We'll get down there a little bit later, and he, he's going to just pour that out so clearly and so fully. But he shows us three things in this passage today that I want you to see. The, the truth is, if we look for assurance in terms of ourselves, we will never know with certainty that we belong to Him. So we look to Christ. Paul says, first of all, in verse 14, as we've already read, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, the children of God. Being led by the Spirit and mortifying sins by the Spirit are two complementary ways of describing describing the same thing. Those are not two totally different things. They're they're complementary things. They're joined together by the Apostle Paul. As the Spirit is working in your life, He is leading you. He's showing you. He's he's like like David prayed in Psalm 139. Lord, search me and know me. Try my anxious thought and show me if there be any, any sin in my life and lead me in your will. Lead me in your purpose. Lead me in the righteous path. David prayed. 
Paul is simply saying here that if we are in Christ, if we belong to Him, and we have been adopted into His family, it's the Spirit's work within us that will prove that to us and show us. Again, it's not some sanctified follow-your-heart idea. It's God doing a radical work in your life by the presence of His Holy Spirit. The second basis for such assurance is that God's children have been liberated from dread and have begun to learn delight. For you did not receive, in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and any of other, or several of other of Paul's epistles, you might say, wait a minute, Paul, are you not contradicting yourself? If you go back to verse 1, he says, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, and here he says, but we have not, been, we have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We also realize that the scripture says, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of understanding. That we are to fear God. We're to stand in awe of God. I want you to understand that fear and slavery are used in two totally different ways there. Fear that Paul is talking about here is a dread that we cannot know him fully. Fear here is a dread that if I make one little slip up, he's going to cast me out. Fear, this fear as a slave that Paul's talking about here in chapter 8 is the fear that, that, you know, tomorrow he may, as a slave, he may sell me off to another master. That happened in slavery in Paul's day. A slave was never confident that he was going to stay with a family and we see that throughout history a slave never had any 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 confidence or any comfort they were always fearful always fearful and they were fearful of a taskmaster a taskmaster who might come in with a, a a belt or a whip or or something worse and beat them unmercifully because they had slipped up and made a mistake Paul said, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to fall into that kind of fear. Now, there's still a healthy fear where you stand in awe of the living God. That's a part of our worship. That's a part of our coming into His presence. That's a part of knowing Him and seeing Him in His holiness and in His glory that we sang about this morning. Uh, Fear that is standing in awe and desiring to honor Him in our lives. That is a healthy fear. But a fear that God is going to punish us? No. Because as we have been adopted as his sons, as the catechism said that I read there, he he has fully paid for my sins. He has fully borne all the punishment for all my sins. Now, I may be disciplined. As a matter of fact, I will be. The writer of Hebrews says, "Those those whom God loves, he disciplines. His children, he disciplines in order to lead us that that, that you know, when I disciplined my children, it wasn't for the sake of just punishing them. I disciplined my children for the sake of leading them to see the right path. That's what God does in our life. 
He says, no, you're going the wrong path. You need to be on the right path. I'm going to help you to see that by discipline, but not punishment. Punishment was born for the believer in Christ, Christ alone. So, so our second warrant is that we've been freed from that dread. We don't have to worry about losing it. We sing that song that I talked about in the prayer. He will hold me fast. He is the source of our salvation. And He is the source of our persevering. He is the source of our continuing. He doesn't save us and then say, good luck. But He continues to work. He continues to lead. Liberating us from the dread of punishment. Because if you are in Christ then you are God's dear child. It's pretty exciting to me. The third ground for our confidence is that God's children receive the witness of the Holy Spirit to their own spirits. Verse 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit Capital letter spirit first, the spirit of God he's talking about. Little letter, little s spirit, our spirit within us that we are the children of God. Now I got to be honest with you, this is a mystery. It's mysterious and it's mystical in a very, in a very real way, but it's also very real and it's very wonderful. That if we see God leading us, God's Spirit leading us, if we see the deeds of the flesh being put to death by the Spirit, and if we're understanding that in that He is leading us, then we, we have the Holy Spirit within us saying, yeah, you're not perfect, but you're mine. You belong to me. Bearing witness with my Spirit when I pray. Bearing witness with my Spirit when I when I read His Word, bearing witness with my spirit that I belong to Christ. Again, that verse has been misused a lot, pulled out of context, and said, well, I just feel okay. But there's no mortification going on. There's no confession going on. There's no repentance going on. There's no putting to death the deeds of the flesh going on. But I just feel okay. Remember that book when I was in college, came out, I was a psychology major, and they made us read it just because it's pop psychology. But the title of it was, I'm okay, you're okay. I wanted to write a book, I'm okay, you're okay, but I'm not really sure about you. You know, I think I'm okay because I always feel okay. It's not about feelings, it's about knowing. It's about the Spirit of God through the, His witness and the Word of God saying, you belong to me. I love a excerpt from one of Sarah Edwards' diaries. Sarah Edwards was the wife of the great American theologian and philosopher Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s. And, and Sarah Edwards left this record of this work of God in her own life. I'm, I'm going to have to read it in her language, so bear with me. She wrote this when she said God, well, she struggled early on in her life, with a fear of the wrath of God. She knew God was a wrathful God. She knew in Romans 1, it said, 
for God's wrath is being poured out against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And she feared that greatly. And she, she just struggled with a sense of God's wrath upon her own life. But one day, in reading Romans 8, he took it away. And this is what she recorded. I felt a strong desire to be alone with God, to go to Him without having anyone to interrupt the silent and soft communion which I earnestly desired between God and my own soul. And accordingly, I withdrew to my chamber. There in her chamber, she continued to read Romans 8 in her Bible. And then she continued, The words appeared to me with undoubted certainty as the words of God and as words which God did pronounce concerning me. I had no more doubt of it than I had of my own being. I seemed, as it were, to hear the great God proclaiming thus to the world concerning me, who shall lay anything against the charge to my elect? It was strongly impressed on me how impossible it was for anything in heaven or earth, in this world or the future, ever to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I cannot find language to express how certain this appeared. The everlasting mountains and hills were but shadows to it. My safety and happiness and eternal enjoyment of God's unchanging love seemed as durable and unchangeable as God Himself melted and overcome by the sweetness of this assurance, I fell into a great flow of tears and could not help weeping aloud. Aloud. Crying out. You know, we live in a day of scarce tears. We live in a day of scarce longing after God as much as we long after our paycheck. We live in a day of scarce longing after God as much as we long after relationships with other people. I I know many a person who would say, as long as I've got friendships in this world, as long as I've got friends and a and a husband or a wife who love me, and children who, who at least partially obey me, and, and parents who care for me, that, then I can be happy in this world. But they have no longing for the truth of the living God in their life, and thus they make those things idols in their life. One of the things Paul is wanting to tear down, or should I say, one of the things that God wants to tear down through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 is the idols. He wants, to, he wants us to hear him as clearly as as Sarah Edwards did on that day when she read from Romans 8 and it drove her to her knees to cry out to the living God and weep ferociously before Him because of her own sin and her own lack of trust and her own lack of desire until He gave it to her clearly. I think we have to ask the question, It's a very personal question. It's a very poignant question. As we look at these verses of being led by the Spirit, mortifying the flesh, receiving adoption as the children of God to cry out, Abba, Father, given the privilege. Listen, that is a privilege. That is an adoptive privilege to be able to say, 
Abba, Father. You see, what Paul is making clear here is two things. One, that everybody can't say Father there. God is not the Father of everyone. He is the Creator of everyone. But He's not the Father of everyone. He's only the Father of those who are in Christ Jesus, adopted into His family by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Only they can cry out with intimacy and with reality, Abba, Father, our Father who art in heaven, he said, pray. And only believers can pray that. Only believers can open up their hearts to that. So we have to ask, are we willing to even prepare ourselves for that reality in our lives? Are we so afraid of what people might think? Are we so, so caught up in pleasing man rather than pleasing God are we so caught up in our own reputations and our own self-importance that we're afraid to open our hearts to receive this glorious and beautiful gift that Sarah Edwards talked about, the gift of assurance that is deep and rich. How do you do that? How do you, how do you prepare yourself? We know it's the work of God. We know it's the work of the atonement of Christ is applied by the Holy Spirit. But how do you prepare yourself for it? Well, I, I think, first of all, you humble yourself. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 3, He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I realize on the news every day today that we hear pronounced blessed are the poor that Jesus said blessed are the poor and we need to take care of the poor and there's no falsehood in that we do need to take care of the poor that's for sure that's our that's our responsibility as believers but Jesus is not talking about monetary poorness there or poverty how about the poor in spirit poor in spirit come to God and say God I have nothing to offer I recognize that everything I am and everything I can be and, and everything that I, I've been given is, is from your hand. It's, it's a gift from you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We have to humble ourselves in the presence of God. And dare I say, in the presence of one another. Secondly, I think we have to clear away the clutter. Clear away the clutter from our lives. Listen, in my own life, there's too much clutter. And I know, I watch your schedules, and I watch where you go and how you go and always go and always go. There's, there's just so much clutter. You don't have time to get serious with God in prayer and Bible study. At the end of the day, you're too tired, and you toss and turn all night, and in the morning, you're, you're not awake enough, and then you start your busyness. Busyness is a great enemy to intimacy with God. You've got to clear the clutter from your soul. And, and clutter can be good things, folks. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you've you got, you got clutter because you go down to the local bar and get drunk every night. That'd be easy to diagnose. What clutter that just good things that keep you away. Sometimes keep you away from worship because it's just kind of what I feel led to do or I want to do. 
You've got to humble yourself before God. You've got to clear away the clutter from your soul. And thirdly, you've got to seek Him. You've got you to pursue Him. Now, now, again, I know the Scripture says in Romans chapter 3, we dealt with it at length, no one seeks after God. And that is absolutely true. Anyone in their own flesh will never seek after God. They will seek to have a God, but they will not seek the true and the living God. They will seek their own selves as God, or they'll seek some other thing as God, and they'll elevate it to a place of of what we would call uh, worship or obedience or or loyalty, but they they won't seek the the true and the living God unless. And see, I'm talking about the unless here. God has pursued them and given them life in Christ Jesus. But a believer, a Christian, has been pursued by God. The old hymn that says, I I sought after God and in the end realized that I wasn't seeking Him. He was seeking me, seeking Him. the glorious truth of grace it's glorious truth of the gospel and so if you profess to be a believer then he has already called you to himself he's brought you to himself and now i say you have the freedom by the spirit abiding within you to seek him and he puts that desire in your heart that's what edward sarah edwards was talking about he gave me this passion he gave me this desire he gave me this longing to be with him above everything else i have a strong desire to be alone with god to go to him without having anyone or i would add anything to interrupt the silent and soft communion which i earnestly desired between god and my soul folks he will give that to you well, give that to me. But even in that, it's our responsibility as Christians, as those who have the Spirit of God, to pursue it. So don't ever say the Lord's leading me to do something that's contrary to His Word. He is not. Period. Exclamation point. Double exclamation point. He is not leading you to violate His Word. He is leading you into a life of sanctification, which becomes a life of obedience, not to the written law, not to a a law that's on a stone tablet, but to the law that by the Holy Spirit has been written in our hearts and on our minds. Because He indwells His people. He indwells His people, you and me, His church, His glorious body. Pray with me.